welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help people grow by connecting truth to life. Here's your host, Daryl Dash. Well, welcome back to the Gospel for Life podcast. And to kick off things this third season, I'm really excited to talk to Brian Sanders on the subject of calling. We all wrestle with God's call on our lives. Often we think of calling as a singular static thing. Brian's written a new book, The Six Seasons of Calling, and he wants us to see our calling as something ongoing and dynamic. When we understand our season of life, we're able to lean into our particular stage of development and understand its lessons and look for what might come next. So I'm excited to talk to Brian because this is such an important topic for all of us. If you don't know Brian, he's a social entrepreneur. He's helped to start hundreds of missional enterprises including churches, nonprofits, and businesses all over the world. Most notably, Brian is the founder and former executive director of the Underground Network, which is an international fellowship of microchurch incubators, creating city-based ecosystems of faith, creativity, and empowered social enterprise. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. It sounds really good when you when you say it like that. It sounds impressive. It's probably, it is good. It's probably, it's probably a overstated, but it's nice to see you there. Yeah, I've been following your ministry for uh, a while as a church planter. I love the uh, the work you've been doing with micro churches. So mm-hmm. I'm, I was excited to hear about your book and excited to talk to you today. So Brian, what got you interested in thinking about uh, calling, the subject of calling? Oh, that's a cool question. I mean, y- you know, I'd, I'd say we have a kind of obsession in the West, and it's probably a good obsession with discipleship. You know, that's a pretty that's a pretty heavy buzzword, uh, and all that that means. You know, the the I mean, what is that really? It's growing in maturity, I guess, in Jesus, learning to follow Him, trust Him, be obedient to Him, to be taught all that He has commanded. You know, and so on. But it's interesting when you think about discipleship systems, Daryl. Like, it's possible to to kind of create an algorithm for discipleship which we love in the west you know we love we love sequences and we love logical progressions and so so is it possible in that sense to to think of like i'm going to walk you through a bunch of steps and then you're going to become a disciple you know a fully formed mature disciple and then if all of those steps are something that i can do or i can lead you through then essentially that's functional atheism right it doesn't <laughs> you don't really need god's so that bothers me. It concerns me, but I don't really know how to fix it. Um, except, except to say that whatever your discipleship pathway or journey or, or or system or pattern or whatever that you create or imagine, there needs to be like a hole in it. You know, something that you think, well, only God could do that. You know, like like there has to be some some place for the living God to take part. <laughs> it sounds really silly to say it that way, but I mean, I think we all would, would probably believe that at some level. Like we need, like in this part here, only God can do it. So for us, in our understanding of discipleship and our journey of trying to figure out how do we lead people to Jesus or to maturity in Christ Jesus in, in the faith, that, that missing link, that hole for us was calling. So everything else about mission, to go on mission, to be in a community of people trying to sort of penetrate darkness or, or, or be light in dark places or bear witness to the kingdom where he is not known or however you want to frame mission, which is to me is just like the 
explosion of discipleship possibilities. And we grow and learn so much on the frontier mission. But, you know, I can't just tell you where to go. I guess we could. I could just say, you know, I have a system or I have a vision for you, or I'm going to tell you what to do. And then it just leaves God out. So for us, it was this thing of like, you have to be called by God somewhere. And we can't tell you where that is. And you have to be called by God into mission, into some group or place or, or you know, context, essentially. And until you figure that out, we actually can't really do anything with you. We 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 can't we can't send you a mission. We do so. You you've got to figure that out. So early on for us, man, we had to learn how to help people do that. How to help people hear God in a personal way, lead them towards something, towards some group of people or some place, so that they could have clarity. That of course everybody is meant to do mission, but where is not as clear. That's that's a more specific calling, not general calling. So that's that's I mean essentially the 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 you know necessity is the mother of invention. So we 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 just could not believe in mission, the God sending people on a personal mission and the priesthood of all believers and all those sort of foundational empowerment uh constructs if you didn't believe that God could actually personally call people somewhere. And so we had to we had to kind of get busy really fast figuring out how do we help people do that. And and at first it wasn't easy. I mean, you just you can't just lock people in a room and say, okay, just pray. We're gonna, you know, don't come out until you've heard God. Um, we did try that, you know, at first. But anyway, that that's a long journey of trying to 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 not just learn how to hear God call us into to something in our life, but to understand what calling is and to place it at the center of what it means to be a disciple. So let's, I want to back up a, a little bit because at first I was intrigued that you were writing a book on calling uh, because I knew you as the microchurch guy. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see uh, you begin to think about, you know, how do we discern our calling and live that calling out in the world? I think you've explained a little bit about that. So could you connect the pieces there of uh, how does microchurch and social entrepreneurship relate to this kind of calling that you're writing about? Yeah, so if, if you release the church, essentially if you say the church can be led by any serious disciple, you know, somebody that really loves Jesus and has surrendered their life to him. And if you think of the church as something simpler, smaller, uh, not to say there's anything wrong with, with more complex versions of the church, but but that there there are these like more 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 uh minimalistic versions of the church which are just as beautiful and powerful and maybe even important in our time. Something that could be led from a break room or in a park or in your living room, something like that. Um, then you start saying, well, then actually every serious disciple could plant a church. You could plant a microchurch. So then the question becomes, where do you go? I mean, if I told, you know, if, if we were talking and we thought, I, I feel called to be a missionary, and oh, well, where are you going to go? I mean, that's like the first question a missionary has to answer. Like, to where? To who are you called? So that that identity as a missionary and the idea of planting churches or forming the kingdom somewhere or, or proclaiming the kingdom and wanting to see it formed, um, it just it just re- relies on calling, right? So you can't, I, I, you know what I mean? If I say I want to be an overseas missionary and you say, where do you want to go? I said, well, I don't really know. I mean, well, then you can't, you can't buy a plane ticket. You can't learn the language. You can't raise money for it. You, 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 you're done. You're stuck. And unfortunately, I'd say probably there are, it's not just a metaphor. Probably that's where a lot of people are. They believe 
in mission. They believe that they ought to be a missionary person. They maybe even see themselves at some level as a missionary person. But until you understand to where you have been sent, specifically, very specifically, how can you do it? You know, how can you be that missionary person? And how can you, you sort of fill out that identity, fill out the shape of that identity? So that for me, that's the connection. I love it. So one of the things I've been concerned about, uh, and I appreciated your book, but some of the, the stuff on calling that's out there, it really seems to be really just a slightly Christianized version of life planning. And uh, so walk, walk us through that. Like, what are some dangers we need to avoid as we think about calling and you're trying to help us figure out God's calling on our life? How do we make sure we don't fall into the trap of just kind of figuring out how to live our, you know, our best life now and um, basically create a bucket list. And it's, it's all about me instead of, I think your book does a really good job of calling us to service, right? Of, of calling us to a higher purpose, but walk us through that. How can we avoid the danger of making our calling all about us? It's really interesting, isn't it? How we, there are these certain words that belong to us, you know, they're, they're, they're really religious words, you know, words like vision, for example. You know, somebody, I mean, if you go back 50 years or 70 years or something, and somebody that had a vision was either crazy or, you know, on, on psychotropic drugs or something like, only weird people had visions, right? And now it's so ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's the last 40 years of all leadership literature has said you ought to have a vision. So it's, it's very mainstream. But the idea of like, I've seen a vision, I'm a seer of the future or something like that. It's a very religious thing. It's a very, it's, it's like pr- prophecy. It's, it's miraculous, right? So in one sense, we, I love that word. We should reclaim that, uh, uh, not just for crazy people and not just for everyday business people that are trying to open a restaurant or something. Um, but, but the deeper sense of like, I've seen, God has shown me a glimpse of the future that I'm supposed to pursue and maybe even die for, you know. But calling is like that too, isn't it? It's it's just a word that's been borrowed um, by in 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 kind of mundane usage. Um, you know, someone might say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm a teacher. That's I just feel like that's my calling, or something." And 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 if it's possible to use the word without God, you know, to say essentially it's something I I enjoy or I I feel good when I do it or I think I'm good at it or something like that. Um, but again, if you go to the, the, the root of it, to, to be called or to have a calling implies a caller, right? It implies a voice, a person who not only has the authority, the sovereignty to call the individual to, to, to live in a, cert, a certain way or to do something, have some assignment, but has that personal connection to us. I mean, it's really profound, man, when you think about that to be called and to believe that I am called as a person that believes in the sovereignty of God, that believes in the, the a, a personal Lord and Savior, then it means, okay, if he calls me, that means he, he, he knows me. He was calling us by name, calling us specifically to something. It means that he has something for us to do. So, when we think about calling, we do think about purpose. Like, what's my purpose in this world? Which is good. It's it's it is a deep longing that we have to to believe that our lives aren't um, aren't aren't futile, but that that we're significant in some way. That that there's something in the world that only we could do, only I could do. 
and that there's a person that that there's only really one person that can tell us what that is that can see the whole playing field that can see the whole board to and and knows every human being that's ever been made every, every hair on their head it's it's just i mean it's actually breathtaking and then to think and then he knows me he knows my name and then he wants to speak to me and say son daughter uh this is this is the, the assignment that i have for you this is the thing that I've asked you to do. So it's intimacy is wrapped up in there, like knowing God, hearing God, being connected to God. And then also purpose, which is connected, like, and this thing that only you can do that I've asked you to do. It's really, really profound. Um, so so obviously I'm not against people using it in the sense of like, I've, I've, I'm, I'm fulfilling my calling by being a teacher or something like that. But, but it's weak. You know, that's not the fullness of what it means. And for us, it's, as believers in Jesus, we ought to we ought to take that word back. Yeah, I love that, um, Brian. I'm really intrigued. I'm uh, I have to I'm old enough that I have to do the math. And every time I give my age now, uh, I'm 54 right now, and I've really noticed just a, a changing. I don't think my calling has changed, but really this season gives a different flavor to my calling. And I really appreciated the book how you talk about the different seasons and how that affects. Um, what our calling looks like and and the shape that it takes. So uh, one of the things I was intrigued by is you even talk about a sense of calling for children. Could you unpack that a little bit? How does that work? How does a, a child live out their calling? <laughs> right. Yeah, so, okay, so if you think of it as like, oh, we're known by God, so he's personal, he knows us. And then he he sees where we are in our life. Like he's not saying, ah, you ought to be doing this, but you're not really equipped to do it yet. So he's patient. Um, you know, when we think of words like sanctification, maturation, you know, that word, that Greek word teleos, that that gets that gets rendered perfect, you know, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, or or complete, or or mature in Christ, that same word that gets rendered those three different ways. It's like, what does that look like to keep growing? Essentially, well, it means that God is patient with us. It means that He's not expecting you to be, you know, the maturity that you have at fifty-four. He wasn't looking for that when you were fourteen. And so that what that does is 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 if you kind of reverse that, then you think, okay, well, what 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 does He expect from a five-year-old, you know, or a seven-year-old? And you might say, well, that's silly. You can't possibly expect anything. Oh, no, on the contrary, on the contrary. That means that that every breath we take from the time we're born, we're seen by God, our life is important, it has value, and it can bring grace into the world. And so trying to understand what does God want or what, what is God's calling on a seven-year-old isn't folly. That's just a professionalization of calling, of, of calling, you know, to think of it as like it's a job or something like that. Of course, a seven-year-old won't have a job, but a seven-year-old has something that they can fulfill. So the argument I make in the book essentially is that all children, you know, from, you know, birth to 12, essentially their calling is to be a child. So it's the only, it's the only season in which the thing that you are is exactly the thing that you're meant to be, that you're supposed to be. And you're not supposed to try to be more than that. Um, and if someone takes away that from you, you're, you're the, the, the sort of the, the play and the wonder and the adventure of childhood, that that's a, that's a regression. That's a, that's a, that's a, 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 a hindrance to your calling, to who you're meant to be. And of course, that changes as we mature. There, more is expected of us the older we get because God is walking with us through the changes of our lives. But but even a child in that sense, and we know what this is like. I mean, 
you know, our own children and our own experiences being a child, we know that they are powerful, that, that God can use them as much as he can use anyone. He can use a child. Maybe not in the exact same ways because they do lack a certain sophistication or maturity or whatever. But the same thing is true for a 20-year-old and a 70-year-old. And the 70-year-old has, has a certain kind of capacity which they've built over the course of their life if they've walked with God that a 20-year-old doesn't have. That doesn't mean that the 20-year-old doesn't have equal value to the 70-year-old, just like the 7-year-old has value. So it's kind of seeing ourselves as we grow and seeing God meeting us in each of those points of our lives and saying, this is what I want from you. This is what I, I know you could be. Um, so, of course, that applies to our kids. I was really encouraged reading your book and thinking about the different uh, seasons of life. I, I know a young, uh, he used to be a young leader. He's not anymore. He's, he's sort of in the same phase that I'm at. And I remember when he was in the earlier seasons and it's been interesting to watch him because now he has that sense of gravitas that you write about in the later stages and he's pushing other leaders forward. It's not about him anymore. He's about elevating others. So it really is encouraging to see I, I was just thinking that made your book come alive in a way to see uh, it embodied in the life of another leader, to see them living that out. So I love that. Um, so talk to me about that. Why is it important that we understand our season and that we understand our particular challenges in that season and what we should be focusing on? Well, you know, I mean, obviously we're looking for patterns, right? These aren't, these aren't, this is a, this doesn't come from the Bible. You know, it's, it's a theory. Um, it's a taxonomy. It's a, it's an attempt to look at some of the ways that we're similar, you know, and in our time or in the age in which we live, there are, in my opinion, discernible patterns, you know. And I, I think, I think a couple of um, maybe crises happen to us through through the changes of our lives. One is we probably think something's wrong with us, you know, if if um, if suddenly, you know, I'm coasting along and I have, I'm, I'm sort of walking with God. I know who I am. I know, I know I'm, I'm sort of bearing fruit in the world and making impact. And, and then suddenly one day I wake up and I just feel wrong. I feel like the, this isn't working anymore. Or something, something isn't quite right. Or, and often it's because something has changed, you know, in our lives. The kids have left the house or we were fired or we were promoted or, we lost our home or we lost a loved one or God forbid we lost a child or some, these, these things happen to us. Right. And so fundamentally who we were and what was going on in our life has changed. So then what? So then you're sort of, it, it's, it's that old um, business book. I forget who wrote it called what got you here. Won't get you there. You know, it's, it's, Everything that was working for a while now isn't working because something has changed. I've changed. The world has changed. My situation has changed. But I'm still kind of trying to operate from this previous identity. And so, I mean, the first gift is to just, just realize that nothing's wrong with you, that, that we all go through these turning points. We all, we all have to change. We have to evolve. Um, and that God is right there with us. It's not, he's not saying, come on, get back on track. You know, it's like there's a whole new track being laid down and uh, you need to switch over to it somehow. So, and then of course, part of the argument I make in the book is that those, those crises, those identity crises, which I'm, I'm arguing happened six times about give or take in the course of your life. Um, and look, may, maybe it's, 
Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's less than that. But it's not. It's not zero. You know, it's not like you 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 twenty one. You hear God call you and say, "This is this, my son, is your calling for life," and you never ever waver from that. That's just not how the world works. It's not how life works. It's not how God works. Um, and it's also not every month where you're sort of waking up, going, "Who am I? And what am I supposed to be doing?" In the world? So, so it's something in between all the time and only once or never. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm making the argument here that it's that it's maybe these six big turning points in our lives, and and to recognize we all go through that probably, and that it's actually a grace, the the, the struggle and the crisis of it. So I, I like the metaphor of God creates the world in six days, and you know each day he creates something new, and it's kind of a culmination, right? It, each 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 uh, part of the ecosystem is built upon the other right and it's a growth you, you keep the last piece of the ecosystem and you build a new thing onto it so if we think of ourselves our development or kind of psychosocial development over the course of our lives as being this this culminating this building up to something but then we we know that it was evening it was morning the third day you know that there's this darkness in between the days that we, nothing happens, or we don't know what's happening, or it's uncertainty, or or it's it's lostness or unknowing. And actually, that's a part of creation. It, nothing is said about it because nothing nothing happens, presumably. But there is some some space in between the, the days of creation that's dormancy or 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 unknowing, you know. And so even when we hit those moments in our lives, which we all do or probably have. Um, well, there's nothing to fear, actually, um, and and I make the argument that you what you do in those moments, if you're healthy, is you turn right to God, you turn back to God, and you in 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 in, in your sense of uncertainty, you turn to the only one you know can give you certainty, and you say, Lord, who am I again? Like, what does this mean now? Who am I now that I don't have that job? You know, who am I now that the kids have left? Who am I now that I've I'm divorced or or whatever's happened? And you really don't know. So you turn to the only person you think can give you an answer. And then what that does is that drives us back to that sort of youthful intimacy where we're open again and say, God, tell me who I am. And then renew me in my purpose or give me a new purpose or something. So that's actually really wonderful and profound. But it can only come because we're desperate, because we feel lost, you know, to return to him. So it's ironic that, you know, you could be 54 I'm 49 now, so I just I probably just went through this recently, um, and that we have a lot in common with the 24 year old, you know, who's at the beginning of their career, going, "Who am I? What am I supposed to do in the world? What mark am I supposed to leave on the world?" You know, we we could sort of uh, pass them in the street or sit by them on a train and go, "I know exactly what you feel," and that feels strange because you think, "Was something wrong with me? I should have figured this out when I was 24." No, you did figure it out when you were 24, but then it hit you again when you were 36, and it hit you again when you're 48, and it's going to hit you again when you're 60, and actually that's maybe the way it should be. What would you say to somebody who struggles with the uh, regret that maybe they've blown one of the stages of their life and they're really struggling with, man, I wish I could get a do-over on that one? You know, that really, that really um, plagued me, you know, as I wrote this. I, I just had this feeling of like, okay, this is so... A developmental so progressive that somebody's going to read this and just think, well, I didn't do that. You know, I threw that, I threw that 10 years away through addiction or, 
or I was lost or I just, I just lost that whole day, that whole, that whole decade or something. And I, 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 I honestly, I don't really know the answer except to say that I know that, that when you go through that, that renewal of the evening and the morning, that it is brand new, it's fresh. And that actually it is a kind of new beginning. It's a, 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 a new start for all of us. So whether the last day was wildly successful and wonderful and fruitful and God was with us in every step, you still run out of that and, and you still sort of hit a wall and you say, now what? So if that last decade or 12 years was terrible and a complete waste, well, that fresh start is all the more, you know, wonderful. But I, you know, sometimes it can be just as difficult to, to have won, to have succeeded, to, to have thought, well, I really want to set out to do something. And this is a little bit of my experience. And you sort of did it. And now you're wanting, now what? And what does that mean? <laughs> and what do I do now? You know, that, that was, just, I thought that would be the, the work of my life, you know, and, and now who am I without that? Whether it was good or bad, the last season of your life, the last day of your life, you get to start over. You're meant to start over. So I, I guess I guess that's maybe the the idea is that we have to let that stuff go. I really love the vision uh, near the end of the book. You talk about the the last season of life, and you present some pretty compelling pictures of how that can be actually your most fruitful time. And that was a, a thing that really encouraged me uh, just to even have that as a possibility, right? That even if we've blown it, <laughs> that could be our future. We God could even use our our setbacks yeah. and develop a, a character that just. Yeah, is, is beautiful and impactful um, near the end. So one of the things I also love about your book, and it's come out in the interview, is you really have a, a vision to um, uh, help people unleash their leadership and realizing it's not just for the elite. And uh, in the book, you talk about it being a confluence of two qualities, love and character. I really love that idea, right? A lot of people would say they're not leaders, but you turn to them and say, look, you got character. And you know how to love people. So explain that a little bit. How does that actually uh, lead to them exhibiting leadership? Yeah, what have we done to leadership? You know, why have we, why have we turned it into something which is so elite? You know, it's that kind of great man myth, these stories of triumph of, you know, the rags to riches or whatever. Um, it's really unhelpful. Um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about, I don't know where I heard this. I think it's Andy Crouch that talks about Princess Diana and Mother Teresa die on the same day. And he said, Andy Crouch was saying, basically, it's interesting how people related to Diana. You know, they sort of like felt close to her, felt like she was like them or something, but not Teresa. You know, in fact, we would say like, well, I'm no Mother Teresa. I mean, people say that, right? <laughs> well, you're no Mother Teresa or I'm no Mother Teresa. But but they felt like this was the people's princess and so on. And, and his point was like, that's strange because nobody can be the princess of Wales. Nobody. I mean, it's 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 a role that only one person can ever have, right? And no, she's the least like an average person that anyone could be. And yet his point was anyone could be a saint. Anyone could be Mother Teresa. Anyone could lay down their life for the poor. You know, Teresa on that, that train to Calcutta saying, 
praying that prayer, Lord, send me the ones that no one wants. You know, any of us could do that. But that would require character and love. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's really it. You know, the 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 sort of virtue in you, the the formation of Christ in you enough, the 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 thriving and flourishing of the Spirit of God in you enough that you would want that, that that would be a desire to love the poor, help the needy, care for those that don't know or haven't heard the gospel or whatever. Um, and then, and then the sort of love to pursue it, to lay down your life, to suffer for the sake of that thing. Those are within reach. So interestingly enough, there probably are people out there that wouldn't see themselves as leaders, but would say, well, yeah, of course I have a heart for people. And of course I love my neighborhood or my, my lost family or, um, the people in this little community that I'm a part of or something. And I just think, man, that is enough. So, so now what? What do we need to do to release the idea of leadership back into those people's psyche to say uh, leadership is something simpler? You know, it's something, um, I don't know, maybe simple isn't the right word, uh, but, but accessible, um, even elegant, even beautiful. You know, I, I think to, to be a success is, it can be a confusing idea in, in the life of the heart and of faith, but to be, but to live in such a way that is beautiful or kind that we understand. And maybe, maybe if we brought leadership back into those kind of that realm of aesthetics, like, are you like, do people feel loved by you or, 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 you know, do you, do you, do you have compassion or empathy? You know, are you living a life that you think is, you're trying to live a life that you think is beautiful or attractive to others that represents Jesus, whatever. Now that's leadership, man. So let's move away from some of this other framing of leadership, which frankly has just gotten us into a lot of trouble, hasn't it? Um, and maybe there's a place for that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle people that are called to public ministry and big moves and affecting lots and lots of people. But we also have to recognize that's probably an anomaly an outlier that's not that shouldn't define leadership yeah that's really good how would you hope that pastors and other leaders use this book to develop their people hmm. yeah i mean i guess i guess i guess if if i'm right that we're going to go through six crises of identity in our lives uh then then those of us that are shepherding or coaching or otherwise just in the development of leaders um, when the, when our people go through those moments of crises, um, will we know what to do or will we know what to say? Or will we even just be able to recognize, ah, this is perfectly healthy, you know, <laughs> uh, don't panic here. Um, whether or not you could say, you know, whether or not my taxonomy is right and you say, well, th don't worry, you know, these are your key developments in this moment. Just knowing that, that this is going to happen, this, this is meant to happen press into God, man, that, that is good advice uh, from people that are leading other people and who are going to be hitting these crises all the time. In fact, you're always, if you have a, a big group of people, let's say a hundred people that you're trying to lead, there's just always going to be somebody that's probably hitting one of these identity crisis moments, you know? So having a framework of common experience, which I try to offer and some insights about the threats. So I, I, I make an argument for in each day, 
there's certain kind of threats that come to us that, that we're, we're a little bit vulnerable or exposed to certain sins or, um, but also opportunities that accompany each of those days. And, and maybe this, this book can give some language or, or t- tools essentially for leaders as they lead people. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, all taxonomies are imperfect. Um, but they do offer some clarity and a process and maybe a way of saying, let's look at the whole of your life and recognize that where you are right now is just one part of it. And there's this whole beautiful place you've come and then there's whole, this whole future that lies ahead of you. I think that can be very comforting and also liberating for people. I really wish you had written this book years ago. <laughs> it would have been so helpful. It, but it's, it's helpful now. And I, I, one of the reasons I want to interview you is, man, I, I can relate, right? I'm going through this season where yes. I'm far from done, but it's different from when I was yeah, a 20-year-old leader or a 30-year-old leader, right? Uh, and and just understanding the season I'm in, I'm in and the challenges that I'm facing, I think your book is really helpful to to kind of put words to stuff that I was feeling and be aware of some of the challenges and opportunities that that we face at all these different stages. So I really appreciate your book. I hope it gets a wide reading, and uh, I hope it's, you, it's used by God. Did you see the little like Andrew Oswald's happiness curve thing? So I did. So basically, you and I are coming into an age now where we'll start to be happier, you know. So for for those listening, essentially what what Andrew Oswald's really worldwide research has discovered is that pe- we're happiest when we're young and then when we're old. And it's a sort of U curve down. And ironically, at the very height of our creative potential, the height of our career, the height of our impact in the world, you know, our sort of, our sort of, uh, you know, forties, um, we're, we're our least happy. <laughs> it's like the, maybe it's the pressure of that or, or all the, the, the things that sort of built up. And then we start, as we get older, we start to drop some of that stuff. Some of those things we were striving for, which maybe we begin to realize that's not as important as I thought it was. So the cool thing, dude, is that you and I are getting to an age now where we're going to start, at least if he's right, you know, we're going to we're going to start feeling a sense of liberation from some of that striving, and we'll have more in common. If you look at the little U curve, I think it's funny. We have more in common with like a twenty-one-year-old, you know, like a fifty-five-year-old has more in common with a twenty-one-year-old in terms of like, man, just just enjoy your life a little bit. Uh, so th- I think that's cool, and maybe we can maybe we make friends with some twenty-one-year-olds and start uh, hanging out with them. I'm a church planter with a whole bunch of people in their 20s and 30s. I love it. It's it's so good. <laughs> Scotty Smith, I don't know if you know him, but he talks about, I think his, uh, I forget what age, but he ta- I think it was like his 70s, he said, were his best decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm I'm claiming that, man. I'm, I can't mm-hmm. wait. Mm-hmm. So I just had my first grandson. So I'm, I can already attest to that's way better than having kids. It's, it's so good. <laughs> Strange. Yeah, it is. It's good. I mean, kids are great too, but not as good as grandkids. So I, two last questions for you. Um, more personal questions. What are you learning these days? Oh, wow. Me. Um, man, I, so many things. Um, so many things. The world is maybe more wondrous than it ever was. I'm, I'm probably learning how little I know. Let's start with that revelation. <laughs> It's funny how how when we are, you know, twenty eight, we think we know so much, and um, but um, 
you know, without going into too much detail about my own burden or my own, the, the suffering that I carry in my body um, for Christ Jesus, you know, we all do. And the older we get, the more, the more sort of sadness and personal loss and pain probably we have to carry around with us, which is why it's really interesting and ironic that older people report higher levels of happiness. And probably, maybe it's what I'm starting to learn, which is there is a way to carry the the sort of sadness of something really profound but also then to 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 still experience joy and wonder and the presence of god and the goodness of god while that thing never goes away you know it's not like i you know what i mean like if if, if something is so sad or so difficult it could just it could just be a cloud that it, that 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 encompasses your whole life and yet you can't live like that. And if you have no control over that thing, which is usually where we find ourselves in these these, these later moments in life, they're just things you just cannot control. And you, and you can't wash it away and you can't make it go away. It's just you carry it with you. It's a burden. It's a wound that doesn't heal. And yet also there is this way to, to still experience joy and happiness and love and wonder and the grace and presence and pleasure of God in your life, and I'm probably I'm I'm just starting to understand that or learn that I that that my happiness is not tied up in making this thing go away, taking away this pain or this suffering, or this burden that I carry. I just carry it, and it's with me all the time. It's in the background, you know, but but that shouldn't stop me. In fact, maybe even all the more you have this sense of savoring. The goodness of God and the grace of God and and people and gestures and little things that are actually quite wonderful, you know. That's probably a big one, dude. This is kind of related, but we were talking before we hit the record button about what a difficult season this has been. I think everybody I know is struggling to a certain extent. So what's encouraging you these days? You know, professionally, I'm I'm kind of pivoting into this uh, collaboration space. You know, I feel like um, maybe the three meta skills of the 21st century are um, self knowledge, like self awareness. That's a big one. Um, learning, like can you learn? Not what do you know, but can you learn? What can you learn? And then the third is, I think, a skill of collaboration. So professionally, I'm really stepping into that space right now, trying to create citywide collaborations around key social causes, um, pulling together, you know, all the agencies, government, non-government, churches, uh, everybody to kind of fight these these big intractable social causes and philanthropists, all that. Um, and that that feels very fresh, very cutting edge. It's not collaboration is not really something Westerners are good at, particularly. You know, we can build empires, we can build brands, we can build silos, but we are we are inept, you know, at collaboration. But it feels like a frontier. It feels like a really beautiful cutting edge moment in time where there's an openness. It feels like we should be learning how to collaborate. We should be being able to do that. So that's a big that's a big kind of source of wonder for me. Uh, not to say it isn't it isn't hard uh, and there isn't major challenges, but it also feels like there's a lot of grace in that right now. For those that are listening that are trying to collaborate, try to pull down, like leave your ego and your logo at the door and try to 
chase some kind of cause together or thing together, I'd say there's real there's real hope uh, on that frontier. So yeah, good. Well, I I love your ministry. I love uh, I, I I wanted for a long time to to meet you and get to know you a little bit. Really grateful for this book. Um, could you tell us where people can find out more about you and and how to get the book as well? Yeah, just Amazon. Uh, Six Seasons of Calling, and then I, I suppose if you put my name in, you'd probably see other things I've written. Um, so yeah, Amazon's a lovely uh, uh, place to, I guess, find things I've written. Uh, I don't know what else to say about that. I'm, I'm not really a public person anymore, particularly. So, um, but I do, I do love the church and the people of God, and I'm I'm as engaged emotionally as you know as I've ever been. Uh, I'm just probably. Uh, slightly reclusive, <laughs> I guess, which is what they're making you do there in Canada, aren't they? They're just locking you down. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just doing that uh, uh, inadvertently, locking myself down. Hey, come to Canada, man. We'll trade places. I'll take Florida for a while. You can have Canada. <laughs> yeah, Florida is the opposite, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Good. Well, Brian, thank you so much, and uh, I think the book's out January, and that's about when this podcast will come out. So. I uh, really appreciate your ministry and really appreciate the book and great to talk to you today. Thanks, Daryl. Hey, thanks for listening to the Gospel for Life podcast. If you're interested in growing and helping others grow, please check out our monthly newsletter. Go to gospelforlife.com slash newsletter. And please don't forget to leave a review of this podcast on your favorite podcast platform.